thank you for the good news of hope beyond whatever we experience here in this life. The fact is your word tells those who are in Christ that they are already raised with him and in your sight even seated with him in the heavenly realms. Our identification with Jesus Christ is such that we're that connected. So to that end, Father, I pray that you would speak through your very imperfect and fallible servant here tonight, your words to remind us of the significance of all that Jesus has done for us. May you speak here tonight because that is what's most important. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated and thank you for getting out here tonight in the midst of uh, the humidity and the heat. There's no place quite like Manhattan on a humid day in the summer. My goodness. And I got to tell you, I am super thankful for being here today in a room with glorious air conditioning. Uh, last year, the air conditioning was busted all summer long. And so, I mean, every time we gathered, some of you remember this, it was just I mean, basically, I was preaching in shorts and a t-shirt and just trying not to embarrass myself in the amount of sweat that was coming off of me. So this year, I get to look, you know, moderately comfortable while I'm preaching to you. So that's a nice bonus. Uh, so tonight, we are going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. Short little passage. Probably a good thing that it is a short little passage because it packs a pretty big punch. As a matter of fact, upon hearing the passage, you might find yourself with some questions. And my hope is tonight that I can at least begin to answer some of them as we explore God's Word together. The passage reads like this. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That's it. That's the end of the passage. There does not seem to be very much good news at all in here. Almost everyone in the world, I think, I, for the most part, at least from the people that I've talked to, certainly on the streets of New York, uh, which you all know who have heard our story before, you know I've done that a lot, um, but everywhere I've been, I think most people generally have a pretty positive conception of Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, almost anyone. I mean, you talk to the, the average religious person out there, which statistics tell us in this country is most of us, and really even no matter which religion someone comes from, 
they're pretty positive about a person by that name. Uh, Islam views him as a prophet in the line of, of course, what they would see as the ultimate prophet, Muhammad. But nonetheless, they still do see him as somebody that God would speak his word through. Hindus see him as a guru. Even a number of strands of Judaism today see him in some way as a Jewish reformer of sorts. Most agnostics and even atheists that I've talked to tend to say positive things about Jesus. You know, he's an, he's an interesting teacher. He's a, he's a moral man. I mean, Western liberalism, and I mean liberalism in the historic sense of, of that word, uh, has appreciated and taken from Jesus's ethical teachings to sort of guide, uh, you know, our own thinking and, and on and on it goes. But I have also thought for a long time, if you want to sort of get a deeper understanding of where a person really stands with Jesus, or at least get what they really think of Jesus, I, I think the quickest way to do that is to get to his cross. The idea presented in the cross that mankind is, is so fallen, so corrupted, that God himself has to take the punishment for their fallenness on the cross. The, the idea that through that death, God's anger at the fallenness of creation is satisfied. The idea that through the cross and only through that cross is, is redemption won for the world from condemnation and judgment. When you, when you get to that stuff, when you get to that, the cross, that is when you will start to see more of either an abrasive reaction or a welcome reaction, but you're going to see a reaction. You're going to see a reaction. Now, believe it or not, even though it may not have seemed like it, today's text is really all about Jesus' cross and for that matter, the effects of it. That is really what it's about. But it doesn't say that specifically. And so to begin with today, I'm going to do something a little different than I typically do in my messages. I'm going to, I'm going to have you kind of join me in some interpretive work. I want you to see how it is that I get to the place I do so that you don't feel like I'm just making stuff up and telling you what I want to tell you. Okay? So... First, think back with me to verse 49. The passage begins, Jesus says, I came to cast a fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. And then he says this, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. This is a very strange way of speaking. On the one hand, Jesus speaks of the Right? I mean, if we think of baptism, we think of water. And so the only way we can really understand what this means is if we go to other passages of Scripture. One of the principles that we hold to and that the church has held to for many, many decades and frankly for hundreds of years is the idea that we need to interpret Scripture with the larger body of Scripture. Especially if you come to a passage where you're like, I'm not sure how to understand this, well then we have to go wider. 
So if you look back in Luke chapter 3, and you can maybe jot these down if you want to look it up later. You don't have to do that right now. But if you look back in Luke chapter 3, what you'll see there is a guy named John the Baptist, a prophet sent ahead of Jesus, speaking about Jesus' ministry that will be coming. And beginning at verse 16 of chapter 3, John says this, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now just reading that alone, we might not still be clear on what fire represents. But if you read the next verse after that, Luke chapter 3, verse 17, it makes it crystal clear. John says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In other words, fire is a metaphor in our passage today for judgment. But what does Jesus say will kindle this judgment? Well, he says it's a baptism. Well, what does he mean by baptism here? Is it the baptism that he got from John the Baptist way at the beginning of his ministry? Well, I don't think so because that already happened long ago and he's talking about it as something coming. So then what? Well, in other passages, namely Mark chapter 10, Jesus refers to baptism as a metaphor for his death. You can hear that in today's passage when Jesus, showing his feelings of dread, says over the baptism, quote, how I am distressed until it is accomplished. Literally, the words it is accomplished there are the same words he utters from the cross. It is finished. Those famous words, the same construction of Greek words. So, add it all up. We've done our interpretive homework. We've now you're seeing how pastors get to whatever crazy ideas they do. I've just done it right in front of you. Add it all up, and what Jesus is saying is the thing that will kindle judgment, that will show where people really stand with God, is found in their response to the cross. So what are the effects of the cross that Jesus mentions in our passage? There are three of them tonight that I want to briefly go over. First of all, he talks about it burning or destroying. Now, why is that? Well, because in one sense, through the cross, we see the cost of our sin. On the cross, we don't just see Jesus' death, but in one sense, humanity sees its death. The Apostle Paul said it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. The cross is the symbol to the world and to his church of just how offensive our rebellion is to God. There is no sin so small that Jesus doesn't feel the fire of it. There is no sin too big that Jesus doesn't endure the burning destruction of it takes it all, and by doing so, judges all. 
But it's not just the cross, of course. It's not just that the cross shows us our sin, that's, uh, is, our sin is offensive. It also shows us that there's nothing that we can do to fix ourselves in the sight of God. As the prophet Isaiah declares about humanity, he says, your good deeds naturally before a holy God are like filthy rags. I mean, he doesn't leave much to the imagination there. Now, for the Christian, there's a, there's a point to that where we can hear that as good news. Because we can say, well, then it's got all depend on God. Thank God. And it's not dependent on me. Hooray. But think about what that says to those who have not gotten to the point where they need or see their dependence upon Christ. It declares something scandalous that, that no matter what they've done in this life, ultimately, no matter what they do or won't do, that that isn't going to add to their pile of righteousness before God. That it's not ultimately what will give them good standing. This, this is offensive. This, I mean, we just have to call it what it is. Paul refers to it as the scandal of the cross. It's the scandal on it in Greek. And so naturally, humanity finds the cross offensive. We can talk about some of Jesus' teachings. We can talk even about his miracles, maybe. But start talking about the cross and why I need it. And I start feeling very uncomfortable. So the first action of the cross is that it, it burns, it destroys any sense that we can fix ourselves. It reveals to us a world in which the Son of God needs to die in order for us to be made right. The second action Jesus mentions will come as a result of the cross is that it will divide. And I'll say for that matter, it will also unite. It, it, it does both. And as a result, it, of the, I mean, this, it makes sense. If it's offensive to some, then of course that's going to mean that there's going to be some argument and disagreement and some division. Jesus says it this way, Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. And you're like, well, that kind of happens anyway sometimes. But, you know, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. There's a lot packed into that. And I think some of this kind of shatters our natural or maybe a, some people's conception of Jesus. He's, he does call it like it is. He does say, yeah, not everybody is going to feel the love. I mean, there, there is a sense, even though he says here, I did not come to bring peace on earth, there is a sense in which he does, right? I mean, I, remember, when the angels announce his birth, what do they say? Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. In other words, there is a sense in which Jesus comes to bring peace between God and those who receive what God's Son has done. But never does he promise that before the second coming happens, there will be peace in this world. 
tells us truthfully, no, there's going to be struggle with it. There's going to be people that hate it. He says in another passage, I came to bring a sword. He warns that throughout history there will be wars and rumors of wars, that Christians will be martyrs. So Jesus did not walk around unaware of the fact that his cross would cause division. He knew that because of people's faith in him, believers and unbelievers, even in families, would have tension. Now, of course, we can read about this happening in the world today. I mean, we hear, especially if uh, we send missionaries over to various parts of uh, Africa where the entire village, the entire population is Muslim, for example. If one family member were to convert to Christianity, it, it really would cause, in some cases, imprisonment, uh, maybe even death. I mean, it would be absolute, you talk about real division, it would be big, big division. But of course, there's, there's lesser, lesser examples of that too. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard personally of people that became Christians and then went home and told their family, you know, maybe excitedly and found out that their family wasn't so excited about their conversion. I had a little bit of that myself. Many of you who have been here before know uh, my, I've talked about my grandfather and how there was nobody that was more of a hero to me in my life. And, after I became a Christian as a young teen, I wanted so badly to see him become a Christian. And so I, I went over to my grandfather's house and, you know, I told him, you know, with all the zeal that a 15-year-old or 16-year-old, I guess I was at that time, could have, you know. I just said, Grandpa, you're a sinner who needs Jesus. You know, and for some reason that didn't resonate. Uh, <laughs> he was a little more tact, probably. You're a wretch who needs the Lord. Good news, you know, like... And it doesn't, doesn't quite ring. And, he, and I can remember, but even as I got more tactful over time and I tried to, uh, and I started to learn how to communicate a little more effectively, still for years and years and years, there was just almost a, a standoffishness to me and frankly even an offense at the message I was sharing. You do know who have been here before, you know, spoiler alert, my grandfather did in fact become a Christian in the last year of his life. Uh, and so praise the Lord for that. But that, I remember that sense of division. All of a sudden, this person that I felt almost closest to more than anybody else in the whole world, now suddenly wasn't with me on something. And there was a sense of division, tension. And Jesus doesn't send us out. Uh, singing kumbaya, making us believe that we're going to be sent into a world that's going to be easy. He sends out his disciples saying, I want to let you know, there's going to be, there's going to be tensions, it's going to be difficult. Don't be surprised by this. So the fire of cross, Christ's cross, it, it destroys our own self-assurance and being able to fix ourselves, but it also is going to it's going to cause some division and some tension sometimes. Now, let me just say as a side note, um, don't go looking for division as an evidence that you're really doing good. Like, don't, you know, make excuses for you just being untactful like I was. You're like, well, you know, they just don't like Jesus. I'm like, no, they just don't like you. Like, <laughs> no, don't confuse the two. Um, so, you know, but, but do know that, you know, that will happen. There'll be tension. So... 
So, the, so it divides us. But then there's one last thing, and this is really a wonderful, wonderful, blessed thing. Fire, of course, also refines us. Just as, as fire over gold or silver does indeed burn away the dross, the fire of the cross refines us. That's ultimately what the fiery baptism of Jesus cross is really meant to do. It is meant to purify a people for himself that will bring him glory. This cross is given, away, given to burn away your sin and declare forgiveness in the sight of God and leave you spotless and beautiful like a precious metal. The cross tells you that in Christ's cross, though you're dead, you have also, through his resurrection, been made alive. As Paul says, through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. You have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. In the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you. Indeed, just as in Jesus' fiery baptism with the cross, he died, so too the language that's associated with our baptism is very similar. In Romans 6, Paul talks about baptism being the place where we die and are raised to new life. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I heard a story, and I'll wrap up with this. I heard a story once from a woman who had read, you know, this. there's a verse in Malachi that talks about God treating us with a refiner's fire. And so she was kind of curious. She wanted to find out what exactly that looked like from a real refiner. So she went and found a silversmith, made an appointment with him to just watch him work. She didn't mention anything about the reason for her interest in silver, just beyond her curiosity about the, the process of refining silver. And, and as she watched the silversmith, uh, he held a piece of silver over the fire and just let it heat up. And he explained that in refining silver, one needed to hold the silver all, uh, right in the middle of the fire where the flames were hottest because that was how the impurities were burned away. But not just that. She asked the silversmith if it was true that that he had to sit there in front of the fire the whole time the silver was being refined, that, that he couldn't leave the presence of the silver. And the man said, oh, yeah, definitely, I, I can't. And she said, why is that? And, and he said, well, if I take my eyes off the silver even once, if it's left even a moment too long in the flames, then I could destroy it. And then she asked the silversmith, well, how do you know when the silver then is fully refined? And he said, not knowing her reasoning for coming, he said to her, well, that's easy. When I see my image in it. 
And if you want to know ultimately why Jesus went to this fiery baptism, such a strange image that he uses, but why he endures the scorn of the cross, why he, he makes this the centerpiece of his ministry. It's, he says, it, it, Luke describes him as being set like flint with his face directed toward Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the cross is. The reason why is because he wants to make people that have marred and scarred and so broken the image of God they were created in and refine them again through his work on the cross so that when God sees you, he might see his image in you again. And so ultimately, this cross that might, yes, cause division and yes, bring some pain, ultimately, is for our good and is worthy of our praise. Let's bow forward a prayer. Father, I thank you for your refining fire. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for not allowing us uh, to, to ultimately be Lord of our life but for taking over. Have your way with us and now use us as forgiven children of God to go out to the world sharing your message of hope and deliverance and peace. We ask in Jesus' name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever.